Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W.A.B.E. in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Wright, says thank you for listening. The pandemic compounded challenges for nursing home residents whose isolation from family and friends often added to confusion and depression. Now, there's a new virtual therapy platform that gives nursing home patients the ability to play skill-building games with loved ones online. Later this hour, we'll hear about Restore Together first. Julie Kushram is an Atlanta-based pianist with an international reputation. She is the artistic director of the Georgian Chamber Players, a sought-after musician with other chamber ensembles, and artist-in-residence at Kennesaw State University, where she also teaches. Julie Kushram has been a guest soloist with international ensembles, including the renowned orchestra of her birthplace, the Osler Philharmonic. On Thursday, May 13th, she'll make her debut with the Atlanta Symphony. And she joins us now via Zoom. Julie, welcome back to City Life. Thank you so much for having me, Lois. It's a pleasure to be here. What year did you move to Atlanta? I moved to Atlanta, I would say permanently about five years ago, but I've been back and forth for the last eight years, I would say seven or eight years, um, because that's actually how long I've been working at Kennesaw. So, um, but permanently I've been here for the last five years. And you've been very active in the local music scene, in addition to national and international appearances. Please tell us the backstory of your upcoming performance with the ASO. Well, it's it's kind of funny how it all kind of came about. I, you know, how the last year has been pretty crazy for most people, but 
for for musicians in general it's you know it's been a whirlwind of cancellations and trying to make things work you know online and online concerts it's been a little insane for for a lot of people <laughs> and uh, oh yeah um and you know we're trying to 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 make things work like or arranging concerts online i've had some amazing collaborations um trying to keep music alive and keep concerts alive during this, this crazy year. But I was driving home, I think, from a store, I think in January, early January um, or mid-January, and I got an email from the ASO and um, they were saying that Stephen Hoff had a conflict for his upcoming concert with the ASO. He was playing the Mendelssohn Concerto Number no. 1 and um they were recording it in two weeks and they were wondering if i could step in and play the mendelssohn concerto instead of stephen huff on two weeks notice <laughs> yes in two weeks notice um so i panicked a little bit uh you know it's it's hard to always think about which concertos that you've done previously. I've done a lot of concertos in my life, but I don't remember all of them on the top of my head. And with this specific concerto, I thought, you know, have I played it? Um, I, you know, I was kind of thinking back, you know, all the years I've been playing, have I played that concerto? And and if so, it must have been a while ago because my memory is pretty good. <laughs> so I couldn't remember it that well. And I thought, you know, I, I should say yes to this. And so I replied and yes, I said, of course, I would love to perform. And um, I called my mom and I said, you know, have I played this concerto before? And she's like, yeah, I think you have. And then we figured out that I had played it, but I was 11. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a few years since I had played it and I hadn't played it with orchestra before. I'd learned it with my lovely teacher at the time. And, you know, I sat down, I, I, I played a little bit that evening because um, I wanted to just see how much I actually remembered of it. And then the more I was playing, I played until like midnight that night. And I'm like, oh, I really do know this piece, you know? And it's amazing how much you remember from when you were 11 years old. Well, it's amazing how much an amazing musician remembers. <laughs> Is it possible to explain that? Julie, to, to non-musicians, how is it that something, well, in this case, more than 20 years ago for you, remains in the mind's ear and then that it transfers to the fingers? Yes. You know, I think most of it honestly has to do with the fact how much I worked on that piece and how much I practiced when I was younger. I mean, I still practice a lot, but when I was, you know, five years old until I was in, in university, I, I would practice a lot. And it, it has a lot to do with how well you practice, how much you actually think about that piece when you're doing it. And it's almost like it it saves somewhere in your brain, you know, like it, all of that work that you've done. I mean, I, I think the fact that I play a lot has a factor in it too, that, you know, music is just part of my life and part of me really. And it just, it has a special place in both your your body and your soul and your brain. That is a marvelous description, Julie. And I think the idea of it saves in your brain in the age of information in this computer-dependent universe we inhabit, that is a 
perfect description of it. Yeah, it's and it's funny too because um I obviously started practicing the piece and everything and it's a lot of practicing I'll tell you in the next two weeks going on here in this household <laughs> um before the recording but in the beginning I thought you know I probably will use the music for this because it's hard to you know memorize that much music in two weeks and then I was like I remember so much more than I thought. And then I thought to myself, I'm really going to work hard for this and I'm going to try and play it from memory. And I didn't think that that was actually going to happen in the beginning. But then a week in, I actually had the whole concerto from memory. And that I'm pretty proud of myself for. <laughs> I think you should be. The Mendelssohn piano concertos ought to be heard more often. What is special about this piece? Well, Mendelssohn wrote the piece when he was 21 years old, and he wrote it actually with a young lady in mind, and he went to visit her in Munich, and he had composed this piece for her, and he came to visit her, and when he visited her, he, he decided that he wasn't interested anymore, oh. <laughs> so he actually left Munich, and then he premiered it himself. And um, he actually said himself that he threw it together, um, which is very funny to me because it's, I think it's one of the most beautiful concertos that there is written for piano. And it just shows how amazing of a composer Mendelssohn actually is. And it has, um, it has so many beautiful, brilliant moments in it. It has a lot of technical difficulties, but also so many lyrical and beautiful parts of it. And it's very obvious that Mendelssohn was a pianist himself because it's very, it's, it sits in your hand so well. And it's just, it's just a wonderful, light, beautiful, fun concerto, hmm. uh, both to listen to and to play. And I should think fiendishly difficult with all of <laughs> yes. those octaves and runs too. Yes, it is. It's, it's, it's easy to kind of have the whole concerto run away from you a little bit. So you really have to pull the reins in. It's almost like riding a horse and you have to put it back. <laughs> of chamber music with several noted ensembles and acclaimed performers. 
How does playing chamber music inform your work as soloist with an orchestra? I think it helps a lot. I think that, you know, when you work with other musicians, it's, it's a whole different mindset than sitting by yourself and, and playing just on your own all the time. And when you play with an orchestra, obviously you play with so many people, but really they are as one, you know, a really good orchestra, they play as one. And with the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra, it's just such an amazing orchestra in itself. And they really feel like that. And it was really nice because I have my brother sitting right behind me the whole time. <laughs> So it was that in specifically was it was was really nice. And so you play, you know, it's like you're you're playing chamber music, but but obviously a little bit different. But I for me, because I was, you know, it was definitely a little nerve wracking having to do that in two weeks. But at the same time, I felt like I had the support of everybody there because I know so many people in the, in the orchestra and I know that the conductor, he's lovely and amazing and such a wonderful musician and then i had david there and it just felt like i was supported all the time and that really made a huge difference oh that's marvelous yes the guest conductor the canadian musician peter ungen who also started as a chamber musician with the tokyo quartet julie you mentioned your brother your brother, David Kushan, is concertmaster with the Atlanta Symphony. What's it like to have him seated in that first violinist chair as you are center stage with the conductor? Um, it was it was really nice to have him there. Um, you know, he's he's kind of my best friend and and my biggest fan, I think, too. And it was it was really nice to have him sit there and you know make sure that i'm calm and and i just do the best that i'm capable of on stage and uh and yeah it was i mean I, he's done a couple of other concert master jobs when i've been soloists um, with different orchestras and um it's always nice to have that support that i know that he's behind me and supporting me that's so sweet i mean it's just beautiful and how proud your parents must feel my goodness <laughs> seeing and hearing you and david perform music of mendelssohn together brings to mind the fact that there was an extraordinary closeness between the composer and his sister fanny mendelssohn would you talk about you and David growing up as musical siblings? Yes, I mean, we, um, I think the reason why we are so close, at least one of the reasons is because, you know, we had music binding us together um, as a whole family, really. We grew up with a very small family. It's just pretty much mom and dad and David and myself. And we grew up just outside Oslo in Norway. And, um, David started playing um, playing the violin when he was three. My mom is a piano was an amateur pianist and wanted to play with someone, and so she recruited my three year old brother <laughs> to play with her, which is you know it's kind of brilliant. Just have some kids and you have a, a chamber music. Uh, well, I have kids who are gifted. <laughs> um, so she she started playing with him, and then I'm two years younger than my brother, and so. I wanted to do everything that he did and uh, I started with the violin as well, but I was not as good and so clearly um, that was a fail 
And um, instead of uh, pursuing the violin, I started on the piano. And that worked out very well because we could play together. And we started performing together when we were, you know, five and seven years old. And we were, I mean, at that time, we were pretty cute <laughs> playing together, you know, so young. And uh, I don't know what happened. We're not cute anymore. So, but at that time we were, and um, it was, you know, it was really nice to have that connection. And um, we weren't always uh, very popular with other children. So it was kind of, you know, yeah, it was, it was a, playing an instrument wasn't so cool at the time. And um, it was kind of my brother and I against the world a little bit when we were younger. Um, and so we, we just kind of threw our energy into music and performing and, and practicing. And we got so much love and care from our parents the whole way through. And, you know, a, that has pretty much carried on until this day. Um, so it's, it, it really is amazing to have such a caring and loving and brilliant big brother. Oh. Um, and, um, he didn't even pay me to say this. So this is, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't know about you not being cute. I think you're both quite adorable, actually, even as adults and your music making is simply gorgeous. Julie, congratulations on your soloist's debut at the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. And thank you so very much. Thank you for having me, Lois. Pianist Julie Coucheron, her debut as soloist with the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra will stream Thursday evening at 8 o'clock, part of the ASO's virtual series of concerts from the Symphony Hall stage. More information will be on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Restore Together is a new virtual therapy platform that gives nursing home patients the ability to play skill-building games with loved ones online. 
The platform has helped seniors connect with family and friends during the isolation of the pandemic. Aaron Arden is the CEO and founder of Restore Skills. He and Daryl Pipkin, director of rehab at the Fulton Center for Rehabilitation, joined City Lights producer Summer Evans to talk about Restore. Aaron Arden began with the origin of the idea for this platform. Restore is actually an evolution of a platform that we started building about 10 years ago. The name of the platform is Timoko, and it's dedicated to help students with special needs reach their goals. And that's how the idea started. And then about two and a half years ago, we decided to shift the company activity and and focus on the adult market. And and that's when we founded Restore Skills, build a platform that can work in nursing home. It's, it's, It's basically the same concept. You know, you gamify skill building, you gamify therapy, you utilize the platform Um, to engage patient and help the teams in the field make sure the patients are engaged and maximizing their efforts. Mm -hmm. So since this was prior to COVID being created, did the COVID outbreak drive it to be implemented into more nursing homes and with more rehab centers? Yeah, we've tripled the business since the beginning of COVID. Restore is device agnostic. So a facility doesn't need to buy new iPads, new tablets, new laptops, uh, we utilize a simple webcam to track the uh, patient movements. That's how they control the games. It's like we or Kinect, the gaming consoles, but you do not need uh, a special gaming console. So the ability, you know, when those patients were isolated, the ability to just take a tablet or a laptop to the patient room and engage a patient in, in a fun activity while reaching their therapy and skill building goals, that's what, you know, impacted that amazing growth in the past year. Right. And can you tell our listeners how this platform works? Like, do they need to have, I saw in some of the videos, they have these like red and blue balls. Can you talk about how that works? Yeah, so what, what, what we do is any laptop, any tablet, also you can work on your mobile, but we, we use the same camera, the same webcam we use for Zoom or Skype and our algorithm searches for red, green, and blue objects in front of the camera. So the patient can hold something as small as a mic and eye candy and work on fine motor skills while playing slot machine controlling an airplane or a cucumber, tomato, rounded balls, uh, dumbbells, exercise balls, rubber bands, balloons. Um, and, you know, again, anything roundish, red, green, and blue, um, that object will control our game. So you can uh, pull the handle of a slot machine while uh, actually doing that with a cucumber. <laughs> it kind of reminds me of Wii Sports, except more accessible that you can use anything around the room instead of just like this little white stick. Agreed, agreed. So you, yeah, it's like Wii Sport, but you, you don't need a gaming console. You can take your iPad and start playing with your grandma in a facility right now, compete who's making more money on a slot machine or uh, who's winning... Uh, uh, a mini golf tournament or uh, skiing the slopes. And you can play with your family. So someone in a senior citizen community can have this. And then me at home, I can be playing with my grandma and we can compete against each other. Correct. So, you know, what's, you mentioned the pandemic that we all want to see in our rear mirror, but we had to change the course of our development at the beginning of a pandemic. We realized that giving patients and, and team members, OTs, PTs, speech therapists working 
in the facility, the, the ability to connect the family members to the loved one at home around the game, that's creating motivation for them to practice. So if you're playing, if you're in a facility and you're playing with your spouse or with your grandchild, you know, you're in Atlanta and your grandchild is in New Jersey and, and you're playing together. So the conversation is not about how's the food today, how are you feeling, but it, it is really engaging and motivating the patients to play and practice. Mm-hmm. And I know new technology can be daunting for senior citizens to learn. How user-friendly is this? Restore is, is very user-friendly. Again, all you need is a tablet, laptop, and, and something red, green, and blue. And we're lucky because our loved ones in facilities have their care partners, their caregivers, the therapists, the, the activity team members that would help them and you know open the laptop for them if needed, uh, start the game for them and work with them, support them while while playing and working on a platform. It takes about 10 seconds from, uh, you know, your intention to start a game to the minute you're playing. Wow, that's amazing. And Daryl, you're the director of rehabilitation at Fulton Center for Rehab. How do you use this with your patients? We use it with patients to build endurance, balance, focus, concentration, upper body strengthening, um, trunk control, coordination, prehension, uh, a wide gamut of uh, therapeutic tasks and activity uh, and improvements mm-hmm. and functional outcomes that we gain by using it. What are the different games that you play with the patients using this? With the patients, we are playing um, jackpot. We play take flight, spooky spiders, the ski saga. Can you describe some of those games? Yeah, um, the ski saga, I'll start with that one. That's one of my favorites. A person is there on the screen and he's skiing slopes and the degree of difficulty increases um, as the game goes along. It starts off slower, um, it increases in speed. The skier has to change lanes and avoid obstacles, has to duck and lean left to right, and their points accrue along the path the longer they stay engaged in the game. It gets really competitive and the the residents really like to accrue as many points as possible. And of course, they stay up and not ski into a tree, for instance. those points then, but it, as you uh, go through the flags and avoid the obstacles, the points really accrue fast. Oh, there's a bridge in there too. There are a couple of bridges that you have to go under, and that can be kind of um, daunting sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> so for someone that, say, had shoulder surgery or something like that, can that help them with rehab, like getting that mobility back into Oh, yes, body absolutely. Grows? Absolutely. Because reaching would encourage and increase range of motion and strength and mobility in the shoulder musculature and the joints there. So shoulder surgery, um, if someone's had hip surgery, uh, same principle, um, if they're standing and doing the activity um, for weight bearing and shifting, weight shifting on dynamic balance activities as well. And I bet that can be a lot more fun than the everyday rehab where you're just kind of like lifting it and everything. At least you have this game that challenges you and you can kind of see yourself progressing. That's true because they really don't look at it as it's therapeutic, but they're having fun. So they're not thinking of it as a rote exercise. It's just counting from one to 10. It's the same concept, the same outcome, I would say, but they're not thinking about how long they're standing, for instance. They may go from standing uh, 30 seconds to two minutes, and that two minutes goes by so fast because they're so engaged in the activity that they're not really concentrating on the actual standing, although the standing endurance and balance may be the goal. 
Mm, that's wonderful. How can patients who are wheelchair bound play these games? Even from the wheelchair, we're working on upper body strengthening and balance because they can sit forward in the wheelchair even if they're not able to stand. And in doing so, we're working on trunk control and balance from that perspective. Aaron, I was wondering for like people that have Alzheimer's, have you noticed an increase in their cognitive skills and their mental health? So we, you know, we also have on the platform cognitive gains working on memory and sequences. What do you want to do? What do you need to do post-discharge? Hazards in the house, uh, money management, uh, uh, sequences of uh, what do you do when you wake up in the morning? Pill skills is a game that uh, uh, you utilize to learn how to uh, manage your medication. There are plenty of cognitive games in, uh, on the platform. You know, research has shown that if your body is engaged and, you're in, and your motor skills are engaged, you're better to build, maintain, and increase your cognitive skills. In, in many cases with, with uh, older patients, are, uh, the platform helps them maintain skills and, and you know, reduce the speed of, of losing skills, which what we want. Uh, to, which is what we want to achieve. What I want to add when speaking about, uh, you asked about patients in wheelchairs, since Restore utilizes a simple webcam, you can basically change the range of motion that the system is tracking. So if a patient is limited in the range of motion, they will still be able to play on the whole screen if they have, as if they had the full range of motion. So you change the range of motion according to the patient range of motion, giving them, ability to, them the ability to uh, experience uh, a full screen game. Okay, so if it's like a skiing game, even though they only have mobility from the waist up, it would still allow them to pretend as if they were on some skis because of the range of where the webcam is at. And the, and the way you change the range of motion. Yeah, so for example, if you're skiing and... Daryl, you know, if, if the patient uh, uh, has limitation in the range of motion, and let's say they can only shift balance, uh, and not, and they and they're limited, so they cannot take steps left and right, you can control and, and adjust the range of motion that we'll be tracking. So minor movements of shifting balance left and right while you're sitting in a wheelchair will still give the patient an experience of playing on the on 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 right right that's true there are some adjustments that can be made we've done that we've done that as we were talking i was thinking um of a patient who was a bilateral amputee upper and lower extremity so both legs both arms amputated even with that patient he was able to do the skiing game we modified it for him so it was either the blue red or green ball we were able to attach to the portion of the extremity that was still present and although the range of motion was limited, we were able to adjust the range of motion so that the camera captured the limitation. So he was still able to engage in the activity. Oh, that's just wonderful. I love that. Amazing, Vera. Thank you for sharing that. I would like to add here, all of our games are developed by uh, OTs, PTs, and speech. And, and it's amazing because team members like Daryl and his teams, they give us the ideas. They tell us what their needs are. Uh, we just recently... I've been asked from a multiple facilities to develop a, a shopping mania game. So, you know, patients have a shopping list and they walk around uh, a supermarket and take from the shelf the different ingredients they have on the shopping list. Uh, our, our slot machine game was developed based on the feedback from a facility uh, in Colorado. They told us, you know, if you want our patients to practice up and down movements all day long, can you develop a slot machine activity? And we did. And it's the number one 
game on the platform today. That's uh, so so we can continue and develop and engage patients just you know because we get that amazing feedback from team members and facilities. Mm-hmm. But do they win real money? That's the actual question. <laughs> or do they? Is it like rewards story. or points? <laughs> <laughs> so it's a funny story. So. Uh, when a patient hits three wilds, we have the wild, wild, wild card on the slot machine. Uh, the facility takes a picture of the patient with a screen and we send the patient a t-shirt. I hit the wild with restore. That's, uh, oh, cool. Yeah, again, it's, it's, everything is for the motivation. That's uh, Right. Yeah, we have several patients that have hit that jackpot, the wild, and they are really into that t-shirt now, I'll tell you. They're like, where's my T-shirt? So we have to <laughs> send out for the T-shirt. They're, they're very competitive for that prize. <laughs> How does the platform measure patients' cognitive and physical progress? Once the patient is on the platform working on a specific goal, the platform collects their movements, their the data of their trajectories, reaction time. And then if you're working with the same patient, you know, along a week or two weeks, you'll be able to compare both uh, cognitive success and, and, and of course, range of motion, number of movements over time. All the data is collected and, and a professional in the facility can look at the data and then also adjust the therapy plan and the games they're using, the difficulty of the game uh, accordingly. So Aaron, since changing the focus of Restore from special needs kids to senior citizens, how have you noticed the improvement in their lives and morale? That's an amazing question because what motivates us in the morning to wake up and build a company and develop games are the feedbacks we receive from, from facilities, from patients themselves, their family members, but more importantly, the occupational, physical, speech therapist and activity team members. You know, We get emails every day, testimonials, videos, uh, um, ideas. That input is, that's the fuel and making sure that, you know, we're engaged and energized and continue to develop. That's amazing. Aaron Arden, the CEO and founder of Restore Skills, and Daryl Pipkin, director of rehab at the Fulton Center for Rehabilitation. With City Lights producer Summer Evans, more information about Restore Together will be on our website wabe.org slash city lights. Earth, air, water, and fire. Going back to antiquity, these four elements were considered the fundamental materials comprising everything in the universe. The theme is the basis for a new show at the Marietta Cobb Museum of Art. The Four Elements, a group exhibition, features 13 artists whose work is relevant to at least one of the four elements. Two of the artists, Doug Pisick and Robert G. Birch, join us now with Madeline Beck, curator for the Marietta Cobb Museum. Welcome to City Light. Hello, thank you so much for having me. I'm so honored to be here. It's great being here, Lois. Thanks. Yeah, thank you so much. Well, Maddie, you curated this exhibition. What inspired your selection of the theme? 
Well, you know, okay, so I came up with the idea for this exhibition shortly after I took over my position at the Marietta Cobb Museum of Art. I started in a summer of 2017, so then I came up with the idea, um, I would say right around the start of 2018. And I don't know how it came to me, but I just had this idea of really getting to indulge in the materials that artists use, but as well as how artists always seem to hearken back to nature and the cosmos and the universe. That just really inspired me. And I had honestly dozens of artists that piqued my interest over the kind of years of developing this idea. And then ultimately I ended up whittling it down to the 13 fantastic artists that I am working with right now. And it really ended up just being artists that I felt truly embodied this exhibition concept, but without just painting a picture of fire or painting a picture of an ocean, I wanted to get a little bit deeper with it you know, by way of subject as well as by way of technique and material. And so the artists I have on exhibition for this show, I feel like really meet that appropriately. And Doug and Robert are perfect examples of bringing, you know, subject and technique and materials into this concept. Wow. Well, Doug, Robert, you collaborated to create a few of the pieces in the exhibition. How did you decide you'd work together? Robert had been exhibiting in galleries and museums, including the Meredith Cobb Museum of Art, for some time. And it turned out that Robert and I met because we were both exhibiting at the same galleries. And by complete coincidence, I was down in Miami uh, a couple of years ago for the Big Miami Art Week. And Robert came up behind me and said, hey, Doug. Robert, you let you take it from there because you're the man that actually thought we should work together. Yeah, we were, we were down in, at Basel and it just made sense to try to work together because I make a lot of my artwork in the Southeast. I'm kind of always moving around, but um, there's a, a studio in uh, Jackson County, kind of by Asheville, uh, that runs off methane from a landfill. So it's kind of where I return to, to to make most of my work. But, you know, Doug's in Atlanta, so I said, let's just drive up and try some things. And for me, it was very exciting. I've always been intrigued by art and Robert makes the most spectacular works, which he, he's going to need to describe the what he does in his techniques. He's, he's definitely a master of his craft. And when he came up to me and said, let's work on something together, because he hadn't worked in wood before, which is my specialty, it just seemed to make sense. And what we were able to do by combining 2000 degree glass with wood that ended up with some beautiful pieces that weren't just a pile of ashes really turned out to be spectacular. I learned a lot working with Robert and he, he gave me the guiding principles of how I needed to create some forms that he could work with. And then he and I worked together. He, he did all the glass work with me standing by his side. And then I took the glass and, and finalized the pieces by rewrapping the wood around them and doing things with them that look impossible, which is really a big part of, the, uh, of what we found very intriguing about the works. Listening to you talk about combining 2,000-degree glass work, which Robert deals with, and, of course, your medium, which is wood, it brings to mind the creation. I mean, <laughs> did you feel like you were back when the universe was taking form? 
Uh, for, for me, it's spectacular the first time you go into a hot shop and experience it, especially as a novice. The very idea of fire or that degree of heat to a woodworker must be traumatizing for you. <laughs> well, I, I knew that the forms I created were going to be damaged. And with some guidance from Robert about some things that could be done to save the pieces, I, uh, I soaked the wood for several days before we blew into them. And uh, the wood was designed, it was engineered in such a way that once the glass was formed, we could separate the wood from the glass before it all completely burned up. And then after we separated, as Robert continued throwing the glass into the furnaces, I took the, I took the wood forms and ran outside with a hose to, to them to make sure that they didn't burn into nothing. And then literally it took months of me drying and, and unwarping and, and cleaning the wood before I could reuse it again and put it back on the glass because the wood had deformed and partially burnt up and I had, it to, um, I had to revive it and make it back into something that could be used later on. And the whole idea of going down, like you said, like creation, uh, definitely. I mean, when you see molten glass, you're literally working with something as if it came out of a volcano. My and Ro goodness. Robert was so kind to introduce me to that medium so that way I could expand what I do and Robert could expand what he does with the wood. Maddie, as curator, did you seek out mixed media works or was this surprising that you found Doug and Robert so willing to collaborate? Yeah, you know, I wouldn't say that that was necessarily a goal when I began conceiving of this exhibition. Um, I was almost leaning a bit more into the expected, like I was saying earlier, like just kind of paintings of water or paintings done with the use of fire, stuff like that. But then once I started really developing the idea and just the relationships I've built with all of these artists over the years, I was starting to just kind of get these little hints and these little little moments where I was just connected back to this exhibition idea that I had. And Doug and Robert actually uh, submitted a piece of their artwork to my museum's juried exhibition last summer. And it was this beautiful wood form that Doug had done with all of these holes in it. And then Robert had blown this glass form inside of it and it's, it bubbled out of the holes in, in Doug's wood form. And it really got me thinking about this elements concept that I had. And I thought, oh my gosh, how perfect. The two of these artists are incorporating all four of the elements, you know, just from a material standpoint, just the air that Robert's blowing into the piece and the earth of the wood that Doug is using. And then the fire of the uh, glass blowing and then water, like Doug is saying, to cool it all down. I mean, it just, that alone was so intriguing. And then you get into these fantastic forms that they've done, like the cloud catcher piece that is one of the highlights of the show, I feel, and it looks like it's floating away. So it really ended up becoming this perfect fit for the exhibition. And I feel like all the other artists fit this same bill, you know, where it was just I've admired their work for years. And then with our discussions, with my just keeping up with their work, I was just really brought back to this concept I had. 
and these artists work moved me the most. And so that's why I really pursued this, you know, dozen, this baker's dozen of really fantastic artists. Well, Cloudcatcher is amazing. Doug, would you tell us how you and Robert created the piece? Well, I, I'll start by uh, telling you about the form that was created. I'll pass on to Robert to talk about the creation of the glass and then back to me for the final fitting of what was done. We um, created a basically a cage of wood with all these forms and legs and holes wrapped around it. And again, it was engineered with wire and braces so that way it could be separated from the glass at the right moment. I brought that over to uh, Jackson County, uh, as Robert had mentioned before, which is an amazing location where they use methane gas from a landfill in order to blow the glass. Yeah, I mean, glass working soft glass is really about uh, controlling the heat um, when you're inflating the glass. So you basically have to set up a bubble shape and then you have a few seconds to get it right. And you know, you put it inside the wooden mold and inflate the glass and then it's a really quick process, um, but you, you kind of can't miss. Once you've removed the wood from the glass form, we put it into a, a kiln overnight and slowly cool it from a thousand degrees to room temperature. And um, then from there, it kind of goes back to Doug and, and his process is really you know, meticulous and precise and, and all the things that glassworking really isn't. <laughs> it's, it's funny you say that because I have an engineering background and I am so into precision with a lot of the work that I create. And I'm trying to work with more free forms. And you can see that with some of the works in the exhibit that Robert and I worked on together. And for this particular one though, I went back to the engineering. After restoring the wood and reshaping it, as I mentioned earlier, I ended up engineering this entire unique mechanical looking structure that wraps around this glass, which looks like, in some ways, it looks like a structured engineered balloon that looks like it's meant to be sucking up air, which was the name Cloudcatcher. And I figured out how to suspend it from ropes from the ground. So as Madeline mentioned earlier, it looks like it's floating off the base, tied down, anchored to the ground with these ropes and leveled up off the air. It took several weeks to figure out how to do that and how to get the effect right, but it worked and it was worth all the engineering to make it happen. And the, uh, the free form of uh, the glass that Robert had created and the way he shaped it, just positioned with the, with the sharply engineered work, which I do, makes for a piece that I find is significantly better than anything I could have done on my own and, and there's something different. I'm not gonna say better because Robert does incredible work, but different than anything Robert could have probably done on his own. Together, we have learned how to become collaborators and take advantage of each other's specialties. Mm. Well, you also collaborated on a piece called Flow Two, which I just love. Robert, how did that piece come together? When the glass comes out of the furnace, it is like 2,300 degrees and uh, it acts a lot like honey. And so if you get enough on the end of a piece of steel, you can kind of just drip it and it'll flow like water really slowly or lava. And so we, we basically poured molten glass on the wood 
um, until it took shape and then put, put that in the kiln and cooled it down. And, and again, Doug ran outside with the hose and we had to <laughs> turn everything off, put, put out all the fires and then reassemble them later. 2,300 degrees pouring over wood. How did the wood just not explode with that or burst into ashes? I, I'm going to say that it's not always perfect. <laughs> the, the water really helps because it creates a layer of steam between the wood and the glass. Um, but if you had left it there for you know, 10, 15 minutes, it would have definitely just, just burns up. Well, it is just a gorgeous piece. Did you learn anything new about the medium in which you specialize through the collaborative process of creating art with someone whose preferred medium is so different from your own. I think that I just learned to admire the way that some people's brains work. Like the way that Doug works is like the precision you can get with wood and having to predict the ways that certain wood will shrink and expand and change. Um, is just so far out of my wheelhouse that I just kind of sat back and, and, enjoyed watching Doug work through all these things and with his engineering mind just even having dimensions of pieces and everything just like documented in all these ways that I, I pretty much it, it evades me so I just kind of just learned to admire someone else who's honed in their craft and understanding of something. Madeline I realize you can't go through all 11 of the remaining but could you tell us some highlights about some of the artists or work featured in the Four Elements exhibition. Definitely. I actually kind of have already broken the artists into not two categories because I'm really trying to refrain from specifically categorizing each of these artists into one element, one interpretation, because I think the beauty of this exhibition is how everything is overlapping. Um, but I do want to give a shout out to each of the artists and I can do so in a pretty zippy way um, <laughs> with kind of how I've organized it here. So um, I did want to bring to the forefront that, you know, while a lot of our conversation today has been rooted in like the materiality of the elements, I do have a selection of artists and that includes Scott Eakin, Dante K. Hayes, Christina Kwan, Eleanor Neal, Kevin Palmer, and Jamil Wright Sr. These artists are using a bit more of a conceptual approach to the elements. So they're exploring ideas like memory and impermanence, ancestry, lost identity. They're exploring these really deep personal themes and concepts and they're doing so through very material elemental processes. Um, and, and always it seems like hearkening back to the cosmos and to nature, like I was saying before. And then we've got artists um, like Doug and Robert here, as well as Chad Walt, Joseph Guay, Eloisa Gallegos Hernandez, and Pem Gabardi and Karina Sephora. These artists are using a bit more of a materiality and technique and subject-based approach to handling the elements. So we have artists that are using found objects and adding their own nuances to it and making commentary on, you know, violence and war and the deterioration of our oceans, you know, these really broad concepts. 
but also just artists like Doug and Robert who are really just, you know, indulging in material and exploring the boundaries and the limitations of these materials and what happens when man and nature combine in these ways and how that's affected everything from science and medicine and still to this day it's affecting art. So that's kind of my in a nutshell way to kind of bring everybody into the conversation together and to kind of feature each of these artists separately. Curator Madeline Beck with artists Doug Pisick and Robert G. Birch. The Four Elements exhibition is on view at the Marietta Cobb Museum of Art through June 20th. You've been listening to City Lights, WABE's daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow evening, please join us for City Lights Live, an outdoor event on the Georgia Tech Skyline stage. I'll host a concert with musicians from ATL Collective performing a night of blue standards from Georgia's past and featuring Athens' own cicada rhythms. WABE's H. Johnson will be a guest, too. Tickets are available at wabe.org. City Lights producer, is Summer Evans. Our engineer is Shelley Canavy, and I'm Lois Reitzes. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also find our archived stories at wabe.org slash citylights. Thanks for listening to member-supported 90.1 WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.